live from the District of Columbia. You are listening to the Black Fundraisers Podcast, a weekly podcast that celebrates, inspires, and equips black fundraisers to excel and positively impact black communities with your host, Kia Kroon. Good day, good people. Kia Kroon here, and I am your host of the 100 Black Fundraisers Strat Talks, your weekly podcast that celebrates, inspires, and equips Black fundraisers to positively impact Black communities. As always, I appreciate you for tuning in, and it's truly my pleasure to bring you thought-provoking and courageous conversations to support you in your journey. Today, y'all, we're talking about the power of storytelling and narratives. And good people, I got a question for you. If someone were to tell your story, what would you want them to say about you? How would you want to be depicted in the story of your life? Would your narrative define you based on your aspirations and contributions over your challenges and deficiencies? My guess is that you would want it to highlight your aspirations. Take me, for instance. I grew up in the hood of East Oakland, California, and I admit that growing up, it was the school of hard knocks. It was rough. And my single parent family lived in poverty most of my childhood. I remember when food stamps had big faces on them and walking to the corner store to get bologna and wheat bread for my sister and I to have for lunch. I remember going with my mother to food pantries and standing in lines at local churches for AFDC grocery bags. And if it wasn't for welfare, public entitlements and community-based programs, I'm honestly not sure how we would have gotten by sometimes. I have memories of my mother going to Montgomery Wards and Sears and putting our school clothes on layaway and how much pride she took in dressing us. She always made sure that our thick, pretty hair was quote unquote, kempt and before baby hair was a thing, she always made sure our baby hair was popping and that we had pretty barrettes and pretty pigtails and bows. And she always taught us to take pride in our appearance and make sure we put our best foot forward. On the contrary to what some people think, despite having the lived experience of poverty, I knew as early as the age of five that I wanted a better quality of life. And despite being a single mother with two daughters and having limited education herself, my mother always stressed the importance of getting a good education as she saw education as a pathway out of poverty. In fact, one of my fondest memories was watching my mother graduate with her associate's degree from Merritt College and how proud we were of her. And again, on the contrary to what some people believe, even though we lived in poverty, we were challenged to think beyond our zip code and pursue our wildest dreams. And my wildest dreams took me to an HBCU, the Clark Atlanta University, and beyond to earn a graduate's degree and numerous certifications at some highly sought out colleges and universities across the country. My lived experience propelled me into a remarkable career in fundraising in which I've had the pleasure of raising nearly $400 million for nonprofits across the nation. 
So while some would be ashamed of their lived experience with poverty, I'm neither ashamed nor regretful of my humble beginnings. My humble beginnings propelled me to purpose and I play it forward every day to be an exemplar to children like me with lived experiences in poverty. That's how I'd want my story told. I would want it to show that I had the intrinsic motivation to succeed and refuse to be a casualty to poverty. As a woman of faith, I believe the word when it says that we have the power of life and death in our tongues, meaning our words can either build up or tear people down. And I do believe that as Black fundraisers, we tell the story and challenges of our constituents what they're up against. And it's our duty to tell their stories in a way that characterizes their aspirations rather than denigrating and stigmatizing them. So today's guest, Trabian Shorters, is dropping by the Black Fundraisers podcast to teach us how to do that, how to effectively tell their stories. Trabian is the CEO of the BME community. He's a New York Times bestselling social entrepreneur and the leading authority on award-winning approaches to diversity, equity, inclusion, and impact through assets framing. Trabian is a retired tech entrepreneur, former vice president of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. He's a father to two beautiful twins who he says will live in a world that we're making better together for them. Trabian, I'm so excited to have you. Welcome to the Black Fundraisers podcast. Very excited to be here. Happy to have you. I've told the good people listening about how dope you are and all about your remarkable contributions. And I just want to celebrate and thank you for what you're doing for the culture and what you're doing for the community. I want to share that a few years ago, I'd come across an article you'd written on assets framing entitled, You Can't Lift People Up by Putting Them Down, How to Talk About tough issues like race, poverty, and more. And I got to tell you, that article completely blew me away. I remember circulating it to some colleagues of mine. And, you know, it was just very, very thought-provoking. But it was months back when I had the opportunity, the pleasure of participating in a workshop that you facilitated in partnership with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on the topic of assets framing, that I had this enlightenment, if you will. So I want to thank you for coming on. I thought to myself, this brother is a force. So I want to get into it. Let's talk about assets framing. Trabian, tell the good people listening about assets framing. What is it? <laughs> sure. Uh, asset framing is actually pretty simple. It is the idea that if you're going to engage people, you should do it based on their aspirations and their contributions rather than the thing that gives them the least authority, autonomy, um, credibility in you know, the real world. Give us an example of a deficits framing narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the concept of step infection. But Stephen Fetchett was a character in an early film, this Black, befuddled, kind of shuffling character that became the symbol of that stereotype of the sort of dumb or ignorant Negro. But the character in the film industry was not actually dumb. He would just play dumb in front of white folk. He, he would use it as ways of getting out of work or as 
influencing the white folk to do what he wanted them to do by pretending to be this befuddled version of himself. And I honestly feel like too much of our philanthropy is based on us playing step and fetch it about our community. We have to describe ourselves in the least uh, aggrandizing, the most potentially threatening, the 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 most fearful or or crisis laden of terms, in order to get you know people to respond the way that we think we want them to. And honestly, getting resources, gaining access, mobilizing people based upon your own degradation is a losing strategy, even when you win. In the training, I'd like to point out that asset framing is not about hiding problems. It's just about don't define people by them. Uh, For instance, the term at-risk youth got really popular and was used a lot, but at-risk youth doesn't actually tell you what makes the kid at risk. And in fact, saying at-risk youth over and over again, it just makes your brain associate the words at risk with the young person. So your mind starts to treat it as an identity rather than as um, you know, a set of conditions that are making the child at risk. We teach in the training that an accurate, you know, other way of describing an at-risk youth in most cases is the word student, right? A student who lives in a community that's been disinvested in, who lives in a community that is over-policed, under-resourced, you name it. But that student aspires to graduate, aspires to grow up, aspires to live, you know, a meaningful life. And so when you talk about a kid who wants to graduate and live a meaningful life, but is living in conditions that make them an underdog in their own narrative, that actually motivates a different type of engagement than it does when you talk about an at-risk youth. But you're talking about the same kid, right? But a better example is we work with Donors Choose, but that's an organization that funds classroom projects in schools. And it turns out that if you promote the need as Susie is in a Title I school and she doesn't have uh, microscopes to study science or whatever, people will donate to that. But it also turns out that if you point out that Susie wants to learn about science, right? She, she aspires to learn. People will fund that and you haven't stigmatized her in getting them to engage. We can talk about real challenges and real problems without writing our people into the public consciousness as defective and deficient um, in order to do so. This is really life-changing stuff. And I shared earlier how I grew up in East Oakland. Classic story. I was the at-risk youth living in the over-policed, under-resourced community. And Mm -hmm. I talk about how contrary to what some people believe, yes, I did want to learn. I was a zealous student. My mother, even though we were on welfare and we relied on public benefits and public entitlements and community service program, yes, my mother wanted me to go to college and she talked to me about college, even though she didn't have an education herself. Um, Although she went on to obtain an associate's degree, she shared how important that was for us and how that possibility was in our realm of possibilities, right? The the prospect of earning an advanced degree, right? So this is really critical. And I want to hear from you as you 
share this approach of assets framing across the country and you're talking to organizations and talking about the dangers of the deficits narrative, Mm -hmm. are organizations embracing this? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, um, your depiction of your hardworking, hard striving, deeply loving, um, you know, upbringing uh, is, uh, I don't want this to be heard the wrong way. It's common. Like, you know, folks in our communities work hard. <laughs> they care. They love. They protect. They strive. They contribute to each other. Like, that's normal in the places like where you and I grew up. And for some reason, the fact that that is normal is not understood, that we are doing all these things to protect our children against extraordinary circumstances, that we're holding hope together and holding the sky up, and that we're doing it all in these places that are you know, under-resourced, over-policed, um, and deeply stigmatized in the popular culture, right? So I, I just want to underscore what you shared because you're telling a truth about Black people in America that needs to be understood even by Black people in America. We've been, taught to talk, we've been taught to talk about ourselves as though we are some other body. Um, so first, I, I, I didn't want to let that go. I, I love the way you describe reality. Oh, yeah, um, that's facts. That's how I grew up. And, you know, I tell people we had uh, food stamps when they had big faces on them. But at the same time, we had a love of learning. I remember getting my first dictionary and it had all of these colors and all of these tabs. And I remember feeling so blessed and just overzealous about learning new words and incorporating them into my vocabulary. And as early as the age of five, I knew, okay, I didn't necessarily know I was living in a social construct of poverty. But mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to live in a better place. And I had care and compassion on top of that. What's not told is the story of, you know, how in the Black community, we are taught that even though we might have modest means and meager resources, we're taught to have compassion and empathy and care and concern for our fellow man. So even though we were in, it was school of hard knocks, we had care and compassion for other people in our community and where we could share and support someone else along the way, we were taught and encouraged to do that. That's right. Yeah, none of us would be here if that wasn't true. So here's the thing, uh, BME community itself, the, the, the uh, black leadership community that I uh, organized, its whole focus is building more caring and prosperous communities inspired and led by, by Black people. One of the things that we do outside, you know, outside of the work with other Black leaders is we train institutions in how to think about and act towards us. We target our training to the heads of foundations and social impact networks, as well as media journalism, you know, news associations, and other folks who carry narratives into the public about us, right? So our whole thing is when you get the leaders to think differently about us, they will get everybody else to think differently about us and, and engage appropriately, honestly, like engage accurately. We've already trained a dozen of the top 50 foundations in the country. We work with groups like the Solutions Journalism Network. We work with folks like the Philanthropy Workshop. So we're helping these leaders who actually want to have a more sincere and accurate narrative about the folks that they say they care about. 
And that's why the article appeared in the Chronicle in the first place, because we had you know, trained and worked with a number of folks. Uh, there's a group called the Communications Network, which is the Association of Social Impact Communications Professionals. That group had, had been putting me on blast for a year before that article appeared, you know, speaking at their conferences, talking to their members. So there's a, there's a movement for defining people by their aspirations and contributions. The simplest way to describe it is equity does not require you to stigmatize those who are experiencing inequity. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? We can have equity without stigma. And so that's the movement that is forming in philanthropy. And right now, I would say, you know, when you look at adoption curves, we're at the front end, right? Early, early adopters are jumping on board with this idea of equity without stigma. But I think you're going to see this in the next five years become even more normed. Because as I said, we already have some of the, the leading foundations rethinking uh, their approaches. You know, Robert Wood Johnson ha- it, you know, continues to work with us. Uh, Annie E. Casey, a number of shops that are very intentional and sincere about how they engage and motivate uh, are still on board. So I want people to know this is a movement, equity without stigma. I get chills just saying that, right? Because this is a real problem, good people listening. And I've worked in environments where this is the type of narrative that we're purporting. Mm -hmm. And it, in having this reckoning, this enlightenment and learning of the assets framing approach, my next question for you is, for Black fundraisers like myself who are listening right now and working in agencies, moving into deficits framing, mm-hmm. what are some things that we can do right yeah. now to promote a paradigm shift or provoke that courageous conversation around this, especially in cases where we may not believe we have the agency to really make the difference. If I could share with you uh, a few links that you can use to even start the conversation internally, right? So um, I've obviously spoken on this a number of places. There's a number of articles. And so just to get your folks internally to recognize that they can actually raise more money this way, right? I mentioned Donors Choose. I'm very proud to be on the board of that organization. Uh, They're amazing. But this shop raises a lot of money, north, north of $100 million per year, right, for, for classroom projects. And they found that when they asset frame compared to deficit frame, they actually raise more money. So this idea, and by the way, they raise money from individual donors as well as, you know, corporations and foundations. So they actually want to teach their teachers how to asset frame their cases because it's more effective, right? So those of us who are running around believing that we have to tell the worst, most dramatic, most denigrating story possible to get people's attention. You're just mistaken. I get that that's what's been taught. I get that that's what's normal. But as I said before, you raise more money using asset framing than you do deficit framing. So now what's your excuse? I hear you. I just got another burning question that I got to sure. ask you. Sure. With your work with these institutional donors like the Annie Casey's of the world and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, 
I'm wondering what kinds of feedback have you received any feedback from them in terms of how they're dealing with applicants or folks that approach them with deficits framed types of narratives? Sure. Sure. As I mentioned, um, these groups are early adopters. So they're at the front end of this movement, to be honest. And they're quiet about it because, you know, their foundations, they like to have their stuff together before they uh, go public. And that's fine. If I'm speaking out of school, then uh, I'm sure I'll hear about it. But I will tell you, there's teams and their staffs that we work with. They're all on board. Like they, they see the value in trying to do equity up without stigma. And they're taking the steps to reflect it to their grantees and others. So I, that's as much as I can speak for other people's institutions in terms of getting under the hood. I know groups like the Heinz Endowment and others um, have been just very, it, it makes a, a rational sense to them. It also makes a moral sense to them. And then they're, they're doing the things to be strategic about it. Uh, groups like the Keenan Charitable Trust, which is also a partner, they've literally um, changed their grant application form, right? So instead of just being a problem focused set of questions, they actually ask about your aspirations. They want to know what contributions you're trying to make through the effort, right? So that's a different way of even engaging their grantees in the question and the conversation. Um, so there's a number of there's a number of institutional funders who are getting, literally getting under the hood and re-examining their public-facing wording, the re-examining the re-examining their processes, uh, and and the team. You know, the staff always leads these things, and the, and the leadership. Uh, always is on board as well. And I love that that there's genuine enthusiasm in uh, a number of uh, philanthropic spaces for equity without stigma. Equity without stigma, I love this. And that's really encouraging to know that the institutional funders are, albeit they're early adopters, that they're grasping this approach, this concept, and uh, there's evidence that they're serious business. I mean, a classic example is I shared how I participated in a training um, that oh, yes, right. partnership right. with this institution. So yeah. that's really encouraging. And I really want us to get this. We can be effective and impactful without this. And I've made a personal commitment to ensure that Anything that I'm producing or co-creating is coming from an assets frame lens as a result of this. And I want to thank you for that. So I want to shift gears here and talk about a couple of a little fun stuff. I want to ask you a couple of bonus questions. And I don't know if you've tuned in with us here at the Black Fundraisers podcast, but we are all about self-care and right. I want to know from you, what are you doing for self-care these days? What's your regimen? Yeah. So when it comes to self-care, um, I'm fortunate in that I'm in a community of Black leaders who are all committed to making a difference. And they're also really down to earth and extraordinary Black folk. So part of my self-care is being a part of Be Me community, right? Um, to be surrounded by so many folks who have such good energy and intelligence and, and heart and love for our people and for all people. The other thing uh, that works for me in terms of self-care is my twin daughters, oddly enough. They're three years old and they don't care about COVID-19. They, they still wanna you know, eat on time, sleep on time, play, read. They got us all on schedule <laughs> to make sure that um, 
that we're not stressing too much about things outside of the house because we got these beautiful people inside the house who are walking innocence uh, and, and, and genuine love. I'm fortunate, blessed in my um, self-care situation. That is so beautiful, Travi. And I'm hearing that you're drawing strength and support from community and fellowship. And that's something else that's not told about our community is, you know, how big on community we are in that fellowship. Yeah. That is really, really rich what you just shared. Thank you for sharing that. Yep. You know, one other thing I'd like to add from what you just said is um, that piece about community and fellowship, it is underestimating Black folks altogether. Um, There's data that shows that, you know, African-Americans are the most optimistic about the future out of all Americans. And when, when uh, you know, Brookings and other people try to get under the hood, try to figure out why that's so, I think they inaccurately assume it's because we've experienced so many hardships that relative gains feel like bigger gains to us. So we can, we can be more optimistic because basically we're, we're so low on the totem pole. I think that's an absolutely inaccurate read. I think the, the more accurate understanding is Black folks are a loving people. You can test me on this, but the instant this incessant multi-trillion dollar pressure is taken off of us, like the moment we get a chance to breathe, the first thing we do is give back. The first thing we do is reach out. Um, When Black folks start businesses, they're far more likely to set up some sort of community give back program in the early forming of their entrepreneurial activities than, uh, you know, white folks or others might do. When Black folks give to charity, they do so at 25% above national averages, regardless of their own family income. This is across all levels, right? They do that. Black folks uh, start businesses, women in particular, but Black folks start businesses at nearly twice the rate that uh, you know, the national average is. So I'm, I'm saying all that to say, we're not optimistic because we, we've been beaten so low that any, any ray of light feels like hope. We're optimistic because we're extraordinarily competent. We, we're, we're, we're very comfortable in our own abilities. We're just trying to get the rest of the world to stop denigrating us and teaching us to be less than we are. Um, You're going to make me run around this room and shout. <laughs> I'm just, You're going to make me do a, a Pentecostal praise dance in this room here that I'm sitting in <laughs> talking to you. Yeah. Um, I'm calling it like I see it, sis. That's a real that's a real word you just shared. We're waiting on the rest of society to get on board and take stock in what we have to offer, who we are. And that's why I started doing this podcast is mm-hmm. to talk about these topics and others and to give perspective through our lands through our lived experiences within these organizations across the world that are working to promote equity and address social issues. So I think that this is really, really important. My last question for you is this, we're still in the midst of Women's History Month. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular woman that's particularly inspiring to you? And if you don't mind telling us who and why? Oh, so many. In the Beanie family uh, is Terry Williams, who is the owner of One United Bank. Uh, That's the largest Black-owned bank in the country. 
Um, the things that Terry and her bank do to literally finance Black advancement uh, is really uh, incredible. One of the other things I love about Terry is she's just a good sister, man. She, she's an extremely accomplished financial professional, but she's also folks still. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 and the bank, you know, One United itself lends to low to moderate income Black communities at 20 times the rate of, you know, uh, Chase or one of these other other banks. And they do so, you know, quietly, consistently. Of course, they're part of the bank black movement. Of course, they teach financial literacy everywhere they go, but just unsung, you know, in terms of the the level of, of give back that one, one United does. Another sister in the fam that, that I'm that I'm you know proud to be associated with is Tamika Atkins. Tamika runs Pro Georgia, which is a civic engagement group in Georgia, but unsung. Her group back in 2018 uh, registered and turned out 35,000 unlikely voters, people who would not have been on the voting rolls otherwise, uh, and made a major difference in the campaign in 2018 and again in 2020. Because if you do the math, Biden won Georgia by 10,000 votes, 11,000 and some change. Well, pro-Georgia brought out 35,000 people who normally don't participate. So I know this is not accurate, but to me, Tamika is the reason <laughs> that, uh, you know, Georgia flipped and, uh, and thereby the U.S. Senate, right? Um, unsung, just a great sister. The, 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 way that, the way that they register people is not just, you know, showing up the day that it's time to register people to vote. They have ongoing relationships in the community, right? After the vote, before the vote. So it's, it's real community engagement, not just community organizing, right? I'll just do one last one. It's not fair because I know so many. <laughs> but Tanya Allen, former president of the Skillman Foundation in Detroit, uh, about a month ago, she left that role to run the McKnight Foundation in Minneapolis, specifically because Minneapolis is where George Floyd happened, right? So, <laughs> you know, growing up and having a whole career in one city, she uprooted and went to where she thought she could make the most difference Ooh. in social justice. Just took on that role, you know, about a month or so ago. So I'm, I'm sure we'll be hearing from her, uh, you know, in the years to come. But I, I know so many, and they're all part of the, you know, the BB fam. And like I said, I'm surrounded by people who love our folks and love humanity and are willing to put in the work. I love that. And I love that you're recognizing these unsung sisters. And these are ordinary women. And when I say ordinary, ordinary in the sense that, you know, they're in their community, they're working, but they're moving in, I would argue, passion and purpose yeah. to affect change. And yeah. I think that it takes optimism and grit and fearlessness to do that. So I want to celebrate you. And, and celebrating these women and just celebrate and clap it up for these sisters mm -hmm. because sisters are getting it done right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm totally, mm -hmm. totally here for it. Amen. Okay. No doubt. Totally here for it. How can our listeners connect with you on social media? Oh, you know, I'm glad you asked that because um, in addition to the work that BB community does in the leadership, you know, sort of circles, we also have a public facing campaign that we're standing up this year. And it's based on asset framing of Black movement, right? And so I would love for your listeners to consider signing up at nextnarrative.net. 
because the next narrative for Black America has to be one that is built on our strengths and our aspirations. This campaign recognizes that the movements for Black uh, lives and the movements for Black ownership and the movements for Black voting rights and the movements for Black excellence, those are our historic movements. And when you add them all up, live, own, vote, and excel spells the love. So we are trying to unite folks in support of Black people's freedom to live, own, vote, and excel in their, in their country. This country is ours. And in doing so, we are literally, literally building Black love uh, in America. So I, I would invite your listeners to, to join the campaign at nextnarrative.net. Live on, vote, and excel. Yep, Black love. I'm getting chills. <laughs> I'm getting chills, and I'm certainly going to sign on and be engaged with this movement, be a part of this movement. I want to thank you for stopping by the Black Fundraisers podcast and expounding on the assets framing approach for all you're doing for the culture. You are truly a force. I knew that when I read that article and I knew that when I was participating in that workshop and just talking to you and bringing it full circle. You know, I have no doubt um, what kind of impact you and the BME community are going to make. And I'm grateful to have you. I'm grateful for your voice because we need you. I want to tell the good people listening, thank you for tuning in. You could be anywhere in the world in these internet streets. So I appreciate you for tuning in to the Black Fundraisers podcast. Be on the lookout for resources from Trabian on ways to evoke the courageous conversation about the assets framing, the power of that approach within your organizations. And let's keep our heads up, keep with the work ahead, keep moving, keep playing it forward. And until next time, I hope you got some value out of this conversation. You know me, stay tuned, stay down and keep your head up. Thanks for listening to the Black Fundraisers Podcast. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to the Black Fundraisers Podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and leave a five-star review. Connect with Kia on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter to stay connected.